Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, welcome along. Thanks for listening to Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to Laura Jane Williams all about her debut novel. Uh, It's the rom-com Our Stop. Now, Laura is known mainly for working in journalism and for writing memoirs so far. Uh, So we talk about the differences in writing those, also about rom-com convention, what an audience expects, and also second-guessing the reader, and how much you really reveal about yourself on the page. And with that, there's some fantastic nuggets in this, all about why Laura thinks that fiction is often better for explaining the truth than actually telling the truth. With a memoir, I was so... I tried to tell the truth as much as possible. I think to the point where perhaps I painted myself as mildly unlikable because I was so desperate to uh, be warts and all. But now, having published my first novel... There's more truth in our stop than there is in becoming, I think. You can hide in plain sight in fiction. Fiction, you can reveal your truest desires, your truest hopes, your truest wants. And it might be a little seed in this character and a little seed in another character and a little seed in another. In memoir, there's such a desire to be understood in a certain way. I think it clouds the narrative. So stay there. There's more just like that in this week's writer's routine. Yes. Hello, my name's Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine, the show where we take a skim through the working day of a successful author to try and steal some of their scheduling secrets. I'm really back on it, by the way, with my social media game. Uh, I've got a lot to do making the show, so sometimes I'm not as hot on it as I really should be, uh, but I'm getting my act together. And if you give us a follow uh, on Twitter, it is at Writer's Pod. Instagram, we are Writer's Routine on there. I'm giving you... um, Every day, more than once a day, by the way, some really inspirational quotes and tips from the authors that we've had on the show to really help the writing that you're working through at that moment. Uh, Now, this week, we're chatting to the author, Laura Jane Williams. It's all about her debut novel, a rom-com called Our Stop. Uh, Yeah, she's known mainly for journalism and memoir. And it's really interesting to hear uh, her talk about the differences in writing journalism, memoir, and also now her first novel and the implications that that has on the truth and also uh, about living your life as maybe content for a story. I've always been fascinated by that idea uh, for memoir writers. If you know that you need to ultimately write and then hopefully sell a a load of copies of the memoir that you're writing, does that kind of affect the way that you live your life uh, and hopefully 
get some entertaining material for the story from. So we talked to Laura a lot about that. Uh, she's written three books. Uh, there's Becoming, Ice Cream for Breakfast, and Our Stop is the first novel. We talk loads about that in the second half of the chat, so stick around for that. She's been a journalist for Red, uh, a dating columnist. She was the happiness expert for The Independent. And Grazia said that she is the speaker for what's going on inside our heads. And I ask Laura about that, about why she thinks she can explain the emotions that we're all feeling uh, with much better fluidity, I guess, uh, than we can really muster up ourselves. So that's on the way. Make sure you stick around. We get into it, as always, though, with Laura Jane Williams, the author of Our Stop, with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. It does depend. I I am inherently a rule breaker. Thank you to my father for that. Um, and so, of course, I have a desk. I have a little office area at the far end of my kitchen uh, facing a wall. I once read that you should never write with a view because it's just distracting. So I face the wall. Um, but I don't like writing at my desk because that feels too conventional and normal. So I break the rules and sometimes go to my dining room table. War. Right. So, so talk to me about the the office. Then that you know, mm, you're not sure. looking. You're not looking out of the. You've you've got no view to look out upon. No. What have you got in there? Um, mm-hmm. on the walls. Any any pictures there? Any like little bits of inspiration that kind of keep you ticking over? Sure. Um, what I have got is twelve pieces of A4 paper that serve as my year to view. If in doubt, just organise something. Look at your diary. Fine. Um, And I also have um, various post-its, three by five cards that have notes on that probably make no sense to anybody but me um, that say things like uh, gender norms, exclamation point, or I mean, it could say anything. Sunshine, remember that. There's a printout from a poem from Twitter um, and it's all there as, oh, that's an idea that maybe I might incorporate in the next the next book, the next article, the next something. Um, and lots of motivational quotes as well. Is there anything keeping you going for the specific novel this time that you are working on? I mean, if I were to walk in to your office... When you were in the middle of writing our stop, would I see any clues as to what you were working on? Uh, (laughs) I had the cover for our stop very early on. And so I printed it out on a piece of A4 paper and then framed it. And for me, the cover was so beautiful and such an anchor point. The tagline, what if you almost missed the love of your life, the bright yellow, the hand over the coffee. Um, I printed that out and that was like, the th- I could see it. Even if I went through to the dining room to write, I would take the framed cover with me. Um, if in doubt, I would look at that. And I've never had that experience whilst writing a book before. Um, and now I've kind of made it part of my process that I'm working on the next book and I would very much like a cover as soon as possible, please. It's helpful. <laughs> well, that, that, that's very unusual, I would imagine, because, I mean, most authors, when they're busy working away on something, mm. it, it still needs to go through quite a lot of process in the publisher before it's it, it's out there. You know, even yeah. the title might change, let alone yeah. the front cover sorted. Why was yours so early? Was that just your publisher's desperation to get you on side? Um, I think it, I, it, it is unusual and I'd never experienced it before. And I think it was, 
Um, my publisher Avon are a small, tight knit team, and everything is a uh, everything kind of goes through the team. Um, so it's about getting everybody on the same page. As I understand it, part of their process is you know when you've when you've got a cover like that, when you've got a tagline like that, that puts everybody on the same page, um, including me as their author. May I say the move to the dining room isn't so seismic. You know, you're not going out for like a, like five mile walks on a racing. <laughs> you know, di- it into feels a pretty space. big to me, Dan. <laughs> so, but why is that then? Why does it feel pretty big to you? What, what is that change? What's happening in your mind when that change walking? I don't know a few feet into a separate chair is doing. I think I'm a rule breaker. I. So, for example, I have tried, I have tried and tried and tried to be the person that gets up at seven o'clock, is at their desk by eight o'clock, finishes their four hours by lunchtime, the afternoon is free to do uh, the second part of my job, which is apparently emailing. (laughs) Did you not know that before you became an author? Oh my goodness. And I mean, I I shouldn't slag it off. Many was the year that I longed for a, a, a bulging inbox, you know, remember 21-year-old Laura, refresh, 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 you know, there's nothing there. Uh, so I'm not going to talk it down too much now, but yes, the, there's a lot of emailing involved in in being a grown-up um, with the career of her dreams. Um, I am, I'm not that person. I have a permanent out-of-office on now that says I work on conventional hours. I'll get to you when I get to you. My job is writing books, not answering emails. And then there's a GIF, so it's more palatable. Yeah. Um, and it's 2019. Now, you, can't, you can't just say things in words. Yeah, if you've not got a moving image, what's the point? Um, somebody asked me about my favourite book the other day, and I started to talk about um, uh, moving visuals, and what I was talking about was films. <laughs> <laughs> All right, however you dress it up. Um, I like the idea that films aren't films anymore. They could just be 90 minutes of GIFs. Yes, that's kind of yeah. what we known as Gif forever. after gift. Like, meme. What are, what are all these gifs doing together? <laughs> um, right. So anyway, you're kind of getting there. So I'll, I'll yeah. jump. I'll jump right in. So the yeah. show is called Writer's Routine. You just said that you work unconventional hours. Yes, absolutely. Talk me through your unconventional hours. And so, so Laura, yeah. run me through the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are sat down to write and to do your emails. How, how is it looking? Leave no uh, stone unturned. Um. Yeah. Sure. I mean, basically, I do best when I circle my desk for an entire day and then finally settle down at about six o'clock. I find it easier to write in the winter rather than the summer. Um, Particularly, uh, you sort of, uh, yeah, November, December, January, February is my best time for writing. I wake up late because you're allowed because it's dark outside and we're all, you know, hibernating creatures. and I can watch like a film with my breakfast. It's a very slow start to the day. I do watch a lot of movies. I watch a lot of television. I expose myself to stories as much as possible in any format. Um, and then, yeah, finally by about four o'clock when it's starting to get dark outside, I'll finally sit down and I can go right through until midnight and I think there's something about physically drawing the blinds to my house, making it cosy. I'm very ritualistic. I light the candle. I have one playlist and one playlist only. The uh, coffee table jazz Spotify playlist. Like there was one of the songs in a Mad Men scene. I'm re- I, re- I rewatch Mad Men every year. One of the songs in a Mad Men scene the other day, I was like, I know this song. I feel like I should be typing as, as I'm watching this. Um, 
so yeah, about four o'clock, and then I can, and then I can go, which works for me now because I um, live by myself. I don't currently have a family. I don't know how that will eventually shape and shift and change. Don't talk to mummy after four <laughs> o'clock, baby. Um, but for now, it really suits me, and I have tried to fight it, and I have tried to work the hours everybody else works, and I feel an incredible amount of of guilt. I know I have to hit a certain word count every day. What is it? Um, about 2,000 words. After about 2,000 words, I'm losing it. Um, and I can push beyond that. But it's like I have a weekly, um, you know, I can do 2, 4, 6, 8, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14,000 words. I can write stories, can't do maths. So I could do about 15,000 words in a week for a trash draft which is my first draft, which is designed to be trash, otherwise it would never get written. Um, but I can't go beyond that. So if I did 4,000 words one day, I, c I can't write the next day. It's like I've, I've used it up. That's interesting. So the, the, the trash draft that you say, yeah. is, is that learned? I mean, you're, so this is your third book, but it's your first novel. Yeah. How has writing this been slightly different to writing more memoir-based books? I mean, I'm trained in fiction. I have a first class honours degree in creative writing and media writing. And that's just always how I've done it. I always did. I mean, gosh, when I was very green, I mean, we're talking first year of university, I would do a handwritten first draft which is as long as, it, my rule was just keep the pen moving, just keep the pen moving, just keep the pen moving. Um, I'm very, I find my joy in editing. So it's kind of like the, what do they call it in Harry Potter? Is it the pensive where you have to take the thoughts out and put them in there? So it's kind of that, it's this possession and I just need to get it out and throw it at the wall and then I can alter it and change it and move things around but like get it out of me but only 14,000 words a week. Well let me take you back to the day then very quickly so you know you're writing your 2,000 words in a day yeah uh, is there anything that helps keep you going maybe a little uh, I... intricacy eccentricity something that may be just peculiar to you? Well I write using the Pomodoro technique so 25 minutes on, five minutes off, 25 minutes, five off, 25 minutes, five off, 25 minutes, 20 minute break. Um, so I can do about eight Pomodori um, in a day before I go, okay, I, you know, I need a minute, I need a minute. Um, and yeah, I like... I have uh, an Alexa, other voice-activated technology okay, is available. Is BBC, sure, so you can do that. sure. <laughs> um, so I have an Alexa and I just tell Alexa to, to time it and then I zone out to my Spotify playlist and it's either keep my fingers moving across the keys or stare at my calendar on my wall and sometimes the less painful thing is to just keep my fingers moving and then I reward myself with a wee break. Uh, nice. <laughs> let me take you to um let me talk to you about the calendar just slightly because you've mm. also said how much you love editing yeah that that's really what you're in it for yeah. how does your writing routine of a whole year work so january through january if you're working if you're writing mm -hmm. during the winter mm -hmm. how does that work when are you getting your trash draft out when are you editing that when's your second draft got to be in yeah typically a uh, trash draft will be done towards the end of summer so that I am indeed doing my editing as it's getting darker. Um, 
try not to work Christmases. My first two books, I was having to work Christmases. Not a fan of that. Uh, December off, please. Um, yeah, so for example, I mean, if we take uh, this past year, I started writing Our Stop in the and mid-July, end of July, but even before I actually start writing, I'll have a very clear direction of what I want to happen chapter by chapter so that my trash draft, that, you know, I permit myself to do the absolute most dire thing you could possibly imagine, just get it out there, but I know exactly what I'm doing for those 2,000 words, and I'll typically make each chapter 2,000 words so that it's very methodical if that makes sense well let me ask you about that plan then mm. for your 2,000 words and then for your 14,000 words during yeah. the week uh, you say that you know exactly what's going to go down in those 2,000 words how, how is that laid out for you in what form mm. uh, d does it take how do you know exactly what you're writing in that chapter mm. so I mean just a very boring word document really um, you know I'll sit down and and right at the beginning when plotting out a novel, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and know where I want my beat, so to signify the chapters, I'll know where a beat change should be. I know whereabouts I, you know, by the middle of the story, everything has got to have been set up. There's got to have been a problem in there that we're looking to solve. Three quarters of the way through, you think everything's resolved and then there's another problem that comes through. So when I've got those beats laid out, and I know a rough story, then it's about plugging that story and dividing it up into the chapters so that I've got 30, 35, 40 chapters. Um, and it's just a case of day by day hitting each point until I've got that dire draft. How often do those points change? Um, often enough to be an inconvenience. <laughs> <laughs> Often enough to be an inconvenience. Um, I try not to change too much in a trash draft, but obviously the earlier that you add or change or adapt, um, the easier it's going to be in the long run. Um, but then it typically comes in an edit. For me, I am very reliant on um, editorial feedback from outside eyes. So um, often my agent, God bless her, uh, heart Ella Khan she um will look at my trash draft um and she so she has seen the worst of the worst of the worst that I can produce but she is able to kind of sift through that and say yes you're on the right track no think about this beat change here think about this direction you know I think you've over egged this so for example with our stop it's a romantic comedy I did a trash draft I don't think about a trash draft too much her notes came back and she said, Laura, for a romantic comedy, this is neither romantic nor funny. Um, mostly because I had not been very forgiving of men within it. And so that was really valuable feedback of like going through and going, oh gosh, yeah, I thought I was being really like clever and insightful and witty. And actually she's gone, change that bad, like example of bad behavior. Like how can we look for good behavior? Um, and then with her weeding those sorts of things out, suddenly you can see the direction that you need to kind of nudge, gently nudge things in I'm yet to have to do a I've heard horror stories about writers having to dismantle whole sections of book you know realizing a certain character doesn't need to be there or shouldn't be there um 
I have got no doubt that my experience with that is well on its way. <laughs> I do not want to tempt the fates. Um, but mostly it's about like nudge, 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 nudge. A trash draft as well typically doesn't have enough plot. But I can see then as I go through and refine it where I can add in plot and tie things up and um, give the reader more to chew on. That always confuses me that authors absolutely know where they're failing in in their trash draft, as you say. Every author that I've spoken to from the Mm. show will sit down and they'll say, oh, my first drafts aren't plot heavy or they're they never expand on the character as much as they need to Mm. why do you think that's the case and why do you think authors aren't able to rectify it first time round um I think you are getting to know your story certainly for I mean I can't speak for anybody else certainly for me I'm getting to know my story I'm getting a feel of the world I'm starting to understand um what's important to my characters and what drives them. And sometimes it takes writing 18, 90,000 words of a trash draft to then go, oh, I know what his driving force is. And then you could go back and, you know, add that layer in. I suppose it's kind of like a, I don't know, like a sculpture. You know, you don't take a lump of marble and then create this beautiful replica of the Virgin Mary's face from it. You have to chip away and chip away and chip away. And every time you sit down, you chip away a bit more until finally you have this piece of art that you're proud of. I knew I had a book in me once I'd written one. And before that, it was just blind faith that it would be something. Um, And then you do it and go... Oh my God, I've done, oh my goodness. Um, And Phil, I I mean, I felt so proud of myself that I was like, okay, now I've got something that I can work with. And actually, now that I'm talking to you, that probably makes sense then why I'm very much like, do the trash draft, go back and edit. Why it's all about that like pensive method for me, right from the very first book that's what I did I just suppose I'd not made it into a ritual yet because first book would have been um, memoirs what was the first one it was called becoming so this will come off as quite aggressive and I don't mean it to it's just the way it will come out of my mouth Uh, I think writing the first book as a memoir Mm. is almost you know there is an arrogance there to think that look people want to know about my life and I'm only in yep. my mid-20s yeah where does that as not as in where does that come from why do you think that <laughs> as, in, as in what made you think I've got a story that is worth telling and it is worth other people reading and learning from I mean I'm a human being so that's what makes my story worthwhile that's what makes my story worth telling same as your story same as my mother's story same as the guy that's gonna pass us on the street later you know we've all got a story to tell um and I think arrogance is a is a good word for that. Um, I've read a little bit about like the arrogance of belonging. Like you have to assert yourself. Um, they say that there's more fiction in memoir and more real life in fiction. And my experience of that is true that with a memoir, I was so, I tried to tell the truth as much as possible. I think to the point where perhaps I painted myself as mildly unlikable because I was so desperate to uh, be warts and all. But now having 
published my first novel, there's more truth in our stop than there is in becoming, I think. You can hide in plain sight in fiction. Fiction, you can reveal your truest desires, your truest hopes, your truest wants. And it might be a little seed in this character and a little seed in another character and a little seed in another. In memoir, there's such a desire to be understood in a certain way. I think it clouds the narrative. Does that make sense? You're looking at me with a very furrowed brow. No, it's okay. <laughs> it's, just, it's just kind of all ticking over, really. But I just want to focus on becoming for a little bit. Yeah. What was the very first moment that the idea for that story came into your head? What was the hook that you think... I, I know that you said, um, you know, everyone's a human, so everyone's got a story worth telling. Sure. But there had to have been a moment where you think, this, this, this is what it will yeah. be about. Um, so when I was, I think I was about 23, my high school sweetheart of a decade dumped me and went on to get engaged to one of my best friends. And they are now married and have children. And I had grown up with him. I had discovered who I was with him. I never imagined that we would get married, which is probably some sort of sign. Um, but when we ended, I didn't know who I was without him. And so I was very deliberate about setting out to find that out. I started university when I was 22 on a creative writing degree. And the first thing that we were told was we would probably never get published. <clears throat> it was a very encouraging course. And um, so that's, you know, being a, a, a rule breaker, that was, that was a red flag to a bull for me. I will show you, which on reflection is probably exactly what they intended. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not doubt them too much. So I was told I would never get published. We were all told we would never get published. Um, and Knowingly, sorry, how many of them have been published? How many of you? How many of the class of two thousand, whatever it was? I believe just me. So that's curious. Um, it's a curious motivational technique that's worked yeah, on it a works on me. percentage on the, <laughs> on the group. In my particular cohort, yeah. Um, and yes, so um, I went through university. I was already 22, 23 when I was at university. So I had already been in the workplace enough to know what I didn't want to do in this life. I knew I desperately wanted to make writing work. I came of age right at the beginning of the blogger book boom, Petit Anglais, uh, Doost.com, single, single mother on the verge of a nervous breakdown, people that had been documenting their lives online and then getting book deals. So I kind of I followed that. Um, and at the same time, that kind of like millennial men memoir was coming into favor. You know, Elizabeth Gilbert did many a 20 and 30 something young writer a favor when she did Eat, Pray, Love. She made it OK to examine your life. She made it OK to think you had enough to say to fill a book. I mean, goodness, her book is like, what, 100, 100 120,000 words about traveling the world to find out who she is, you know, after a breakup. Um Lena Dunham was doing Girls. Um, and so, I, I mean, I remember when we pitched Becoming, we pitched it as a, an eat, pray, love in a post-Lena Dunham world. There were women out there that had been telling their stories that permitted me to believe that I could tell mine. Um, and because I had been blogging, knowing I wanted to build up a community of readers, precisely because I'd been told that I would never get published, 
um, I set about building a community of writers so that one day, whenever that would be, in my imagination, I would, I don't know, I was going to be 45 and finally getting the courage um, that I could say to publishers, well, I already have this small readership. That's why you should publish my book. And I think there was a small part of me that understood that being a good writer isn't good enough. There are plenty of good writers out there. I also needed to figure out how to, to market myself so that out of all of the good writers, it would be my book that would get chosen. One last question about Becoming. Um, mm. So we, we, we've spoken about the writing of Our Stop in that you had this 2,000 word a day, more or yeah. less rule. Mm. How did that work with the writing of Memoir? How mm. much did you know about that story, apart from the fact that it was your life before you started typing on your laptop? Mm. I actually, it gets a bit meta in Becoming, in that... Um, I thought I was going to write this like daring book of sexual conquests and a woman owning her sexuality and 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 her becoming. Um, I did that. I was living in Rome at the time, running a children's language school. I did that, read what I had written and didn't like the woman reflected back to me in the pages, which sent me on the second half of the book of kind of going, I don't want to have all of these sexual conquests and I'm not finding myself in the bed of another man. Um, and so I, I declared abstinence for a year, celibacy for a year. I moved into an Italian convent and ended up writing myself into the second half of my book. Does that make sense? It does. And it leads to the question then, if you are blogging, if you are if you are living your life almost to write it, uh, go... Um, abstaining yourself from sex for a year did you mm. do that knowing that would be good content for a story um I mean I no it's always I think in order to create any kind of art you must live well so it's not about living in order to have something to make into art living well comes before the art if you can make art that reflects your life then all power to you but I would never do something explicitly to do it for the story um so I read about this woman reflected back to me in these pages and knew I wanted to change the course of my life, not the course of my book about my life. It's only on the other side, you know, that I had been blogging, I had been documenting these tales. You get that reader feedback, especially when blogs are a little bit more naive, you know, 10 years ago, the earlier days, um, you would exchange emails with readers and have comment section and everybody on Twitter would like share each other's work and champion each other. Um, you, I was getting like real time feedback on what was resonating with people. Um, but I think it was quite a selfish endeavor that it was helping me understand more about myself. And then when it comes to, okay, gosh, people are really into this fact that like I abstained from sex and then fell in love with another man whilst I was doing that and followed him to New York to say that I love you um people are interested and then you go okay well let's start from there um and because I had been blogging I had somebody from a publisher reach out to me and say you know have you ever thought about doing a book um do you have an agent and that spurred me to like really get my proposal in order and go Okay, well, if I was going to make this into a book, how would I tell this story? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we get back into it with Laura, I want to say a massive thank you if you've taken the time uh, since we last chatted to pledge to the show over on Patreon. If you're enjoying what we're doing, if you've got any tips from the 70 authors that we've brought you that have helped the way that you tell your stories, um, then please do say thanks and chuck a couple of dollars our way every month. Barely the price of a cup of coffee for the interview. That really would go so far. You can do that over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. It goes towards the show, goes towards me getting to the place where I'm chatting to the author, goes towards me buying new tech so I can bring you the best episodes that I can, and also as often as I can so I can make this as regular as possible. Just a couple of dollars a month helps out with that. By doing that, you also get Writer's Routine merch, which you can pin to your coat or something and let everyone else know that you're part of this community. Uh, We've got badges, we've got bookmarks, we've also got ways that you can hear special episodes, not just hear them, but get your questions answered by some of the best authors that we're chatting to in the next few months. It's all there. It's so easy for you to just support the show um, and say thanks for over 70 episodes now of tips, help and advice from some of the best authors around. To help us out, it's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. And I'm going to stop this rather painful plea for money for me right now. Thanks. Hi, my name's Phoebe Locke. And my new book, The July Girls, is out now. And my writing tip is when you are stuck on an idea to either get in the shower or get on a train or do anything mindless, basically. (laughs) I got a tweet from Chris uh, after Phoebe's episode last week saying that he had gone out, he had bought The July Girls because he simply had to know what was going on. Uh, And if you've done that, I love it. I don't just love hearing that you've bought the stories that we've talked about. I think the author and the publishers do as well. It really helps me get even more authors to come on the show if they know there's a chance that, hey, you can sell some books if you come on Writer's Routine. That's always helpful. So if you've done that, if you've bought a book uh, and the only way that you've really heard about it is through this show... 
please do let me know all about it. Then I can go to publishers and say, look, this happens. Please give me all your massively successful authors. That would be really, really helpful. So if you've done that, you can uh, drop me a note over on the contact page at writersroutine.com and you can tweet me at writerspod. Let's get back into it then. Uh, With Laura Jane Williams, this half is all about the book, really, about her debut novel, the rom-com R-Stop. We chat about how she gets to know her characters, which is mainly through writing, but there's also a strange, slightly odd way that she gets to know them, which really is a performance for herself. I can't really explain it. I'll let Laura take you through it in a sec. Also, we chat more about that Grazia line earlier on, uh, their testimonial for her, why she thinks that she can speak uh, what people are thinking better than maybe they can themselves. That's on the way. And we get back into it uh, with more about the story, our stop, and finding out where she got that initial spark of an idea from. I was leaving London to move to Derbyshire and I think was very much aware that it was it would be like pressing a butterfly between pages and keeping it forever. You know, I wanted to um, imprint the London that I had lived on my mind and for me the best way to mark the ending of a life chapter is to write about it. Um, I had met with um, Phoebe Morgan, who was at Avon. She um, is now across at Trapeze. Um, and together we talked about like, gosh, isn't isn't the idea of like the missed connections, the rush hour crush column in the Metro, like, is there a story there? So going away and being like, oh, goodness, you're like, oh, something about that and based around London and all my favorite places and... Um, I think I wanted the challenge of a dual perspective. Um, it's alternating chapters between Nadia and Daniel wanting to write from a male point of view. That just seemed like a fun thing to do. Um, and so doing a little bit of a writing sample and just testing the water. I never actually thought that I would write a rom-com and I never thought that I would do commercial fiction Um, I remember the first writing sample that I did and my editor saying she crossed out, she rose to a stand and put, she stood up. And it was so instructive to me about how if you have good enough plot, you can simplify your language and that it's not about showing off about what you can do you should be working so hard that your reader doesn't have to think at all and that is good storytelling so how did that affect the like everything else you wrote after that mm. did, uh, how much did it lead you to the point of almost double taking every single r- word that you're writing thinking how can i make this simpler how can i strip mm. it back how can mm. i make it easier for an author just to read my story mm. um I think what was really amazing was um, getting those first couple of thousand words right with my agent and then Phoebe seeing those then gave me the confidence to like proceed in that way. Um, I actually, I am not comparing myself to Zadie Smith, but saying that I have heard somewhere that she works and works and works and works and works on a first chapter until it is airtight And then that sets the tone for the rest of the writing. I can totally understand that. Um, And for the next book, that's absolutely what I've done um, is 
working on these few thousand words so that as you really get into it it's like earning your own trust if I can do that and everybody's on board that like okay I've nailed the tone of voice I've nailed the direction now let me at it you you said that you you, you chatted with Phoebe mm. um and then you know you've got this idea of looking in the metro personal ads and mm. thinking about almost sliding doors moments on tubes mm. what happened next how did that then become the the, the thorough outline of a plot that helped you write 2,000 words a day, what did you do? Um, so we agreed on the premise. They knew that they wanted a commercial fiction title, so it was very much a, 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 an untraditional... Um, we kind of like developed it together rather than historically you would, or traditionally, sorry, you would write 80,000 words, submit it to a publisher, and then you would get bought uh, because I had already done two books, albeit nonfiction. I was in a position to work together. They knew I could carry 80,000 words. Um, so yeah, from there, it was about going, okay, so we've got this idea of the misconnections and no, like it would be really fun to write a man and a woman. Uh, okay, where do we go from here? And it's about sitting with that blank word document and going, and then this could happen, and then this could happen, and then this could happen, and then this could happen. What I've done for the book that I'm working on now is basically write it as like continuous four or five pages, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then break it up into chapters. Like, oh, that could happen, natural pause. That could happen, natural pause. Um, and then combing through it and making sure, right, am I building suspense? You know, my little notes in the margins are like, okay, chapter one, introductions, chapters two through five, build a little bit of suspense, build character outline, chapters six, seven, eight, introduce the B plot, and so on and so on. So every single time when I sit down, I don't have to do any thinking about the purpose of the chapter. I can just get those 2,000 words. There are many things people expect from a rom-com. Mm. I'm wondering how much being a rule breaker, like you said that you are, how much you, that influenced you and how much you thought about it when you were writing your bullet points. Mm. Did you think about the beats that a reader would expect to see here, what they want from a rom-com? How did that play? I think that's another facet to you work hard so that your reader doesn't have to that they shouldn't be able to anticipate a beat change. I very much made deliberate choices of examining what might, you know, it would be very easy to write a book where the, the female is more romantic than the male. And so, okay, flip that on its head. The male is more romantic than the female. Um, that... <sighs> I'm trying to think of another example, but I don't want to give away any of the plot. Um, but so my favorite stories, you know, the success of Fleabag, the success of Fleabag is absolutely because you think when you think it's going to go left, it goes right. And when you think it's going to go right, it turns you around 360 degrees and then spins you off in another direction. Um, that's what keeps it interesting for, for me as well. I worry less about those things in the earliest draft. It very much becomes in the refinement stage for me, adding in those could go one way, go the other. Um, for ex I see, I can't even say that. I was about to give away my own plot again. I get to know them by writing the 80,000 words and then it's going back and 
being like, oh, Daniel wouldn't do that. Oh, God, Nadia would absolutely do that. Why is he a Daniel and not a Dan? Like, uh, this is slightly personal, but I'm always curious about names. Sure. Oh, do you know, I, do, I can tell you his name is Daniel Weissman. Weissman, because that is the, <laughs> that's the maiden name of the marvellous Mrs. Maisel. Right, okay. With which I'm obsessed. Um, to me, it's just always Daniel. I think his mother's just always called him Daniel. Um, and I'm painting a picture in my head of who he is. He's he's tall and handsome in a way that if you met him on a date, you if you met him on Tinder and went on a date, you would fall more in lust with him as the night went on, but you wouldn't necessarily look twice at him on the street. Quite That's Daniel. Quite well educated. Uh, he is the first in his family to go to university. His father worked very hard to put him through without any debt. Um, oh, there you go. So you are flipping it. Because yes. if I heard Daniel Weissman, you know, you kind of think um, person who comes from stock, who comes from heritage, whose father, whose grandfather mm. have all been to a college, you, mm. you know, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, so that's interesting. That's great that you are, mm. that you are flipping this. Um, sorry. Carry on with the answer that I interrupted. Um, yeah, so you were asking about who who Daniel is. It's funny. Character work is some of my favourite work to do. I Bear with me on this. You might think it's nuts. Smile and nod anyway. Um, I love character work so much that I myself embody different characters. And it depends what I'm wearing. So this started when... One day, I was living in London, I was living in Stoke Newington, it was a beautiful balmy day, I knew I was having friends over for a kind of alfresco little picnic-y lunch in the garden, um, and I had got this new white linen dress, and I put it on, and I thought, I feel like a, a French woman, I, I must go out to a cafe and sit at a, on, a, on a pavement table and eat a croissant, so I did, and as I did that, I let myself believe that I was this French woman. And I ended up, I do like little 50 to 100 word captions on Instagram under hashtag Laura Jane Wears of the characters that I feel like in particular outfits. So um, the woman that I was in this white linen dress became, you know, Marie, who is furious that her son is marrying an uncouth American who you know, she absolutely is on to her that she's trying to steal away her baby boy, but she's come out for a cigarette and a croissant in order to flirt with the guy who, you know, owns the cafe and it will boost her confidence. Or I might wear a baggy dress and trainers and suddenly be like, oh my goodness, I feel like a like a an LA-based, uh, pansexual, dope-smoking, like, film producer. Um, and it's those... <laughs> And I know it sounds a little bit bonkers, but it is so instructive to them when I get down to the page. Almost if I can imagine what they're wearing, I can imagine their backstory. And that is so much fun to me. Let me ask you this. Mm. Grazia said that you are the speaker for what is in our heads. Mm. Why do you think that is? Why do you think you have the ability to write what's in your head, what you're going through and make it relatable to a whole swathe of people? Um, I think it was either, I think it was Cheryl Strade that said, if you truly focus on the personal, you make it universal. So trying to write something universal often has 
the opposite effect. But if you write something truly personal, whether that is for a made-up character called Marie who is furious about her son marrying an American, or whether that's telling the story of your life uh, that your high school sweetheart married your best friend, the more specific you can be and the more... Um, the more personable you can be, I think the more you allow people to see themselves in that. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much for giving us a listen and also for Laura Jane Williams for coming on and telling us loads about her story. Remember what I said earlier on, no pressure, you don't need to do it, but if by chance you do buy uh, her debut, R Stop, because of the chat that you've heard on this show, go online, tweet us, tag me and Laura in it. I'm sure she'd love to hear that she's selling copies of the story that she's slogged for for about two years of her life. Uh, Also, make sure you give us a follow. It's Writer's Pod on Twitter. Twitter, Writer's Routine on Instagram, and you can get in touch with the show and find all the episodes we've done so far over at writersroutine.com. If you do have a spare second, please do leave a review for the show over on Apple Podcasts. Let other people know uh, how much you're enjoying what we do. Uh, Maybe they can find us and they can get tips, help and advice that they need from some of our authors. And yes, if you can spare a couple of dollars to help out the show, please do pledge over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Next week, we're chatting to the Canadian crime writer Shari LaPena. I'll see you then with more next week on Writers Routine. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.